Hey everyone, I'm Megan, the Family Finance Mom, and welcome to Finance Explained. This week, instead of the usual three headlines of the week, today's episode is dedicated to energy prices. This year, we've seen oil prices soar to near all-time historic highs in the immediate aftermath of the Russian invasion. What consumers paid at the gas pump actually did hit an all-time high, as supply chain and refinery constraints pushed retail gasoline prices up over $5 a gallon. Energy prices have been one of the significant drivers behind inflationary pressures we've experienced over the last year. But in recent months, now that energy prices have started to abate, inflation is as well. But energy prices still remain high by historical measures. In today's episode, learn what drives energy prices and what we can expect going forward as I sit down and talk to energy expert Patrick DeHaan. Welcome to Finance Explained, where you'll get the top financial headlines of the week, along with an explanation of what it all means and why it matters to you. Back in February, Patrick DeHaan, Gas Buddy's head of petroleum analysis, joined us to talk about what was happening in energy markets and what a Russian invasion might mean for energy prices. His comments proved highly omniscient. I'm super excited to have him back today to give us all an update on energy prices, including how gas prices are determined, the major factors impacting energy markets today, as well as what his near and longer-term outlooks are for energy markets so you can financially prepare. With nearly two decades of analyzing energy markets under his belt, Patrick is a true expert on this topic. Please welcome Patrick DeHaan. Well, Patrick, thank you so much for joining us again today. I really appreciate you taking the time to be here. Well, thanks for having me again. So for those who have been longtime Finance Explained listeners, we last spoke with Patrick likely last February, just before kind of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which really wreaked havoc on the energy markets. And you were really, um, I guess, omniscient, for lack of a better word, and kind of talking about some of the ramifications of that. The market today looks a little bit different. Um, So I want to talk to some of those drivers. And then I also want to talk just kind of big picture, remind people, you know, who actually is setting energy prices in the world and how are these energy prices determined? Yeah, there's there's certainly a lot uh, when it comes to oil that changes on a daily basis. And it's just been an extremely volatile year. Um, Oil markets initially panicked. Uh, If you think back to March, when prices started skyrocketing, the, the concern was Russia uh, invaded uh, a country, a uh, sovereign country, the concern Russia being one of the world's largest oil producers, uh, there was a lot at stake. And we kind of anticipated that uh, that the West would respond, countries like Europe would respond, um, potential retaliation. And that's what happened. The, the U.S. and Europe slapped sanctions on Russia. Basically, the most they can do to penalize them with really uh, not getting involved in the war Oil prices surged to $135 a barrel. Um, but then as as we've kind of learned and as we navigated Russia's war in Ukraine, Russia was still able to send oil. And as it turns out, China and India were more than happy to buy what basically was then discounted Russian oil. Nobody really wanted Russian oil because of the strings that came along with it. But China and India said, we'll take it. Uh, and so Russia essentially was forced to sell it to them at a discount. 
because nobody really, uh, nobody else really wanted it. So from March, when oil hit $135 a barrel, it's basically been slowly falling as we continue to navigate kind of this new world we live in. And the thing is, the, the reason why oil prices have not stayed elevated is because Russia continues to ship oil. China and India are buying more from Russia, which means even if other countries aren't buying that Russian oil, it's still finding a home. So basically, the flow of oil has not seen a significant uh, significant change. It's just where the oil is flowing from and where it's going to. And gas prices um, have declined after peaking at $5 a gallon this summer. Um, there's been incredible volatility. We've seen some bumps in the road uh, in the fall with refinery outages, especially on the West Coast, where we saw an incredible surge in prices because of what else drives prices, not just oil, not just Russia and Ukraine, but refineries. And that's what a lot of people forget is, is that without refineries, we don't have gasoline, we don't have diesel, we don't have jet fuel. So there's a lot there as well. So, and just to give people some background, a refinery is basically taking the oil that comes out of the ground and then refining it into the in-use products that we all use. So to the extent that you don't have capacity or you're reducing mm -hmm. capacity at refineries, you're ultimately also creating supply pressures. And because they're not producing as much in-use product for all of us to use, and that has an the negative impact on prices, meaning prices go up. So yeah. what are some of the things, you know, so now, you know, we talked about, we saw peak kind of 130, $135 a barrel oil. Now we're looking at something more, and it obviously moves a lot more like $75 a barrel oil, I think. So, you know, that's almost a, a having since the summer, since like late last spring. What are some of the factors that are behind that? Well, you know, things change on a daily basis. And though I would say at the high level, Russia and Ukraine is still probably one of the biggest drivers of year-on-year -year differences. We have to remember that even though here in the U.S. we've kind of moved beyond COVID, right? Our mask mandates are gone. Americans uh, really last summer took to the roads with cheap energy prices. We've been getting back to normal. Uh, so Americans had a pent-up amount of demand for gasoline. We we kind of went through that, right? Everyone had cabin fever, wanted to get out. We've done that. But other countries that are major oil consumers are, are not in the same phase, uh, especially China. China's the second largest oil consumer globally. And China's had more of a COVID zero policy. They shut down whenever COVID resurfaces. And so really, while we've moved on, uh, China's been in this in this kind of environment of constant shutdowns. And when they shut down, demand instantly drops. And so not only because Russia's oil is continuing to flow, but because China has continued to battle COVID, and that's had a major impact on consumption, that we've seen oil prices kind of basically uh, slowly dropping over the course of the summer. And that's one of the highest level issues too. There's a lot to be said about all these different issues, how they play off each other, um, even things like OPEC policy. But at the end of the day, the most critical things and why oil hasn't seen uh, or stayed at those high levels is because the flow of oil rush, uh, from Russia has continued and China has continued to shut down its economy um, as, as COVID um, has, has basically continued to see a, a surge in cases. And so demand globally has taken a hit because of China. At the same time, supply has continued to flow. And so the markets have kind of been watching the numbers. We're also entering the time of year that Demand in the U.S. is declining. Summer is over. 
Um, every American would probably think, oh, hey, every American hits the road for the holidays. But really, the fall holidays, we don't see an increase in demand. It's just a shift in demand. Uh, the kids are out of school. You're out of work. You drive to grandma's house for Thanksgiving, but you also sit there and park for Thursday and Friday. That's interesting. So it's not really the yeah. amount of demand, right? I, and that's I never had a really, big effect. Yeah, I never really thought about it that way, but that's an interesting, yeah, that's interesting. Um, I want to go back to something you touched on a bit earlier about how some of the refinery shutdowns caused an impact this summer. Is that been alleviated? Is that like a permanent shutdown? And what, like, why were there shutdowns? Well, so the height of the problem there at the refining level, and keep in mind, this is kind of a two-faced issue. The price of oil has been high, but refining. And so now on the refining side, you have to go back to COVID when Americans abruptly stopped driving. And when, remember, prices for gasoline fell, I paid 99 cents uh, or at least saw it for 99 cents in Wisconsin back in April of 2020. Americans weren't driving and they weren't filling up as much. So what do you do if you're an oil refinery? The consumption of the product you produce has plummeted 60% and you're basically selling it for 20 cents a gallon because many refineries were. Mm -hmm. You were losing basically every gallon of gasoline you produce, you were losing money on. Mm -hmm. And so refineries very quickly had, had no choice but to curtail production. Some refineries went belly up. They just couldn't afford. I mean, literally every gallon you're losing 50 cents to a dollar. The more you produce, the more you lose. So some refineries permanently shut down. Others that had deeper pockets, thinking of the major oil companies, they just throttled back to like 50% and, and hoped that, you know, the storm would pass. But it's the, it's, it's the shutdowns, the permanent shutdowns that are now biting us again because that production mm -hmm. is not coming back online. It's like an auto manufacturer shutting down and you, you just, you don't return. Right. Um, well, those, those workers go work elsewhere. Yeah. Like it's not, it's well, not like a switch you flip. Exactly. And in some of these cases, the refinery is not just sitting there ready to go again. I mean, it, it, it was over a year before we really saw a broad recovery. So some refineries dismantled. There was also uh, some damage from hurricanes. One refinery suffered a fire uh, back in 2019. So basically the end here is that U.S. refining capacity fell 5%. And it wasn't just COVID didn't just hit the U.S. Right. Europe saw a 6% drop in refining capacity, which normally wouldn't be a problem. But when you're then dealing with a surge in demand as we move past COVID, and then on top of it, Russia, which produces a lot of oil and also refines a lot of oil for the EU, when this all happens at once, it's kind of like a perfect storm. And that's what we felt this summer is there just was not enough capacity um, uh, to meet demand. And mm -hmm. the only reason we've made ground on that now is because summer's over. The problems are still there. We could still have a, a spring and summer that's really, really ugly. Hopefully not as ugly because oil has come down. But this is a problem that's that's kind of now in the background. The only good news is that refining capacity, not so much in the U.S., but in the Middle East and Asia, is improving. That is, new refiners are coming online. Uh, the world's, probably the arguably the world's largest new refinery is coming online in, in Nigeria in the year ahead. Cost $20 billion and seven years uh, to, to build. Wow. The problem is no U.S. oil company right now wants to build refining capacity. There is one expansion that's almost done in Texas. But where you get politicals is... Why would oil companies invest in something when Americans are going to EVs, when the administration wants to push Americans towards that. EVs? Right. Exactly. So this is kind of a problem that will only be solved, not because of, of U.S. ingenuity and increases in capacity, but because 
there are increases in capacity in developing countries that still do need fossil fuels. Okay. So, and I think that latter point is something that comes up a lot, which is where does the role of kind of public policy fit into this? And mm -hmm. I would almost add as an extension of that from the financial side of things, you also then also have like ESG pressures, yeah. which, and so for people who aren't familiar, ESG stands for environmental, social, and governance. And now you have kind of um, pressure from both investors as a whole, but also money managers who put together like ESG funds that score companies on how environmentally friendly are they? How well are they putting in place, you know, social, I don't know what you would want to call them, social goals. Um, yeah. And then also corporate governance. And they score these companies. And then based on that score, say whether that company can fit in or not. And so not surprisingly, most major oil companies do not fall in that ESG bucket which has kind of burned a lot of those funds in the last yeah. year. Um, but now ironically, suddenly you're starting to see like Exxon pop up in some of those funds. And then, and, and there's money to be made there. And, and, and to your point here, this is, ESG has been around what, five years, seven years, probably a little bit longer than that for the early uh, adopters. Part of the reason why oil companies probably have not been in a hurry to increase capacity, right? Because we, we've heard about this, right? right? Politicians have said oil companies are sitting by, they're not doing anything, which never take anything a politician says at its full word, right? There's probably some element of truth and there's some element of, of untrue. And part of this is the ESG conversation is oil companies have watched investors run away, funds have run away from their stocks. And so what do you do to prevent that from happening? Because that can undermine your ability in the future. So oil companies have not, in this price environment where prices are high, you're thinking, oh, oil companies will just use a lot of that money to increase production and return mm -hmm. and, and increase the return. But oil companies instead have been watching investors run away. So what are they doing? They're making it more attractive and more difficult for investors to run away by boosting dividends and buying back their own shares because they're pretty, you know, it's a good value right now because they don't want more funds to run away and undermine their, their ability in the future. So, you know, that's where the ESG play comes into this is oil companies are now intently focused on shoring up their bottom lines and making it a really attractive buy that is oil stocks. And, you know, and, and that's why oil production hasn't gone up more, more significantly is because the, the money's being diverted to share buybacks and dividends. But can you blame an oil company in this environment? So that's one part of it. The other part of it, is the administration and their rhetoric. Now, the administration, arguably, these policies, you know, everyone's heard about the Keystone, everyone's heard about the permitting, everyone's heard about these issues. The oil company, these cycles are notoriously very long. It takes years for investments to bring oil online. I just mentioned that refinery in right. Africa. It took seven years to build. So our policies that Biden has, has implemented today it's not like a refinery could have been built in the last year anyway. So right. the these things the administration, the policies the administration has chosen will have more effect in the years ahead. But the primary uh, the primary challenges and catalysts for where we are now are still those that that predate the administration. COVID and things that the administration has no hand in, Russia's war in Ukraine. Right. Um and that's why we are where we are today. And that's why we'll probably still be susceptible to rising gas prices next summer. But I'm hopeful that it won't be quite as bad as what we've experienced this year. Although I would also argue that most financial 
analysts and investors tend to be forward looking. So yep. they're predicting and looking out and saying, this is going to continue to be a decline in supply, which is going to put, even though prices have come down significantly this year, I think it's probably safe to say most people would expect that over the long term, the trend is going to continue to be up. And it's some sort of, you can correct me if you disagree on that, but um, it's almost kind of like we're trying to force this EV yes. transition mm -hmm. and we are going to have an ongoing kind of supply demand mismatch as this transition plays out that is going to cause a lot of this increased volatility that we've experienced in the last year to likely continue. Yeah. And I, I think the rhetoric, you know, the administration, you have to be careful what you say, because what you say is what you think. And oil companies are going to pick up on what the administration says. Maybe not actions, but, um, you know, actions may speak louder than words. But if the administration is targeting the oil companies, the mismatch is going to be that that you know, oil companies see no benefit to increasing capacity now because they the administration has made clear the direction it wants to go. So this is going to have a ripple effect, you know, from now down the line. And and so that's, I think, the the uh, the mistake the administration made. I mean, look, they're talking to Venezuela and they, they just allowed Venezuela to export crude oil. So I think that was the mistake is that the administration came in championing you know, we're going to crack down on fossil fuels. It's going to be the end of fossil fuels. I mean, that's what President Biden said when he campaigned. And now he realizes maybe those were a little short-sighted, especially because Russia went to war in Ukraine. And you know what? If the U.S., if President Biden hadn't said that, if he had embraced our industry, we could be bailing Europe out right now. And that would be really sticking it to Russia. Russia would have um, would be up against even a bigger wall. If the U.S. could say, we have oil for you, and Canada, too, keep in mind, Canada's government has also been very anti-fossil fuels. Um, but you know what? Uh, this is all really interesting because the administration, it's been very popular, right, for politics to, to latch on to the EV bandwagon. Mm -hmm. But EVs don't always make sense. They'll make sense in a major city where you have the infrastructure. Um, but, you know, even even in England and Europe are banning internal combustion engine vehicles. But internal combustion liquid fuels still has a place in the middle of rural Wyoming where there will likely not be infrastructure for decades. Right. And now look, the irony right now in Switzerland is because of this whole crunch in energy. Switzerland is actually considering asking people that own EVs not to drive them this winter because they're so short on power. So. And many times right now, um, you know, I should I shouldn't it, laugh, but it's <laughs> it, 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 you know, we put the cart ahead of the horse. We want right. to make the transition, but the infrastructure is not there yet. And we're concentrating on what is socially popular to clean up the environment, to move to something that we believe is cleaner. I mean, that's got a whole nother can of worms there, whether EVs are cleaner, mining for EVs. But we're putting the cart ahead of the horse and we're trying to do this transition before our infrastructure is ready for it. At the same time, we've made the mistake of putting a target on big oil and saying, oh, you're terrible. We have no place for you. And now that there's a crunch in energy, you know, we've basically dug our grave. So, yeah, you know, we have to be very careful because the oil industry has been torched and 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 now 
you know, it's not popular to invest in increasing oil production. Oil companies don't want to do it because if the administration is going to target them, all of this affects you and I and what we pay at the pump. Maybe not so much today, but in the years ahead, we're going to be continued. Uh, we're going to continue to be um, subject to these geopolitical issues that may be out of our control because of the the policies on 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 oil. So, I mean, it almost sounds like as we're having this conversation, just mentally in my head, I'm thinking like this almost automatically creates a potential higher floor on inflation than I think anybody expects, because there is a there is going to be a cost to this transition that is going to continue to be borne by consumers. Well, there is, right? Ultimately, consumers are who uh, is going to pay the most for the transition. The government the government doesn't fund right. itself. We right. fund it. So, you know, I, it's just I think people are pushing this transition harder, and that is going to result in more imbalances because instead of you letting consumers decide um, and instead of coming up with a longer term, you know, everyone's pushing up their goals. California wants to end internal combustion engines even before 2035. The faster and harder you push, the more imbalances we're going to seek. And those imbalances are going to be borne by consumers. Mm -hmm. And and it, it may be a very steep price to pay um, over the coming years. I mean, you know, and, and all of this affects what we pay at the pump, because now, uh, arguably, um, refineries are not going to maintain their refineries probably to the degree they have, because they're going to be putting money in wind and solar and other energy, and they may it may come at the expense of refineries. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> we have to do this transition very delicately. And, and I would caution politicians. I know it's very socially uh, acceptable to, you know, want to transition to something cleaner. Um, at the same time, the imbalances may be too steep for consumers to bear. Look at Europe, natural mm -hmm. gas shortages, electricity prices that are a thousand dollars a kilowatt. I mean, ultimately, Consumers are going to be the ones to bear the decision of politicians, and I don't always think the politicians, you know, have have an eye on the future. So, again, we will pay the higher price of, of fossil fuels down the road, and who knows if we'll be ready to make the transition because of policies that the current administration um, is implementing. So there's a cost there. Um, I'm not one that's, you know, anti-EVs, and I'm not anti-big oil or oil. Uh, they right. both have a place. and. Right. Right now, it's been an uncomfortable year, but we're finally starting to see some relief, not because really anything the president has done, but because supply and demand is changing. It's changing for the better right now. Uh, but the window of falling prices probably won't last much longer. Uh, understand there's a seasonality to gas prices. They're lower in the winter when Americans aren't towing their RVs and boats and you know running those all weekend long. Right, That's the difference between summer holidays, by the way. Yeah. And Thanksgiving is you're not driving an RV, you're not dumping a boat in the lake. Um, and so demand for gasoline is much lower in the winter and thus lower prices. It has nothing to do with an election. This is very predictable, as is gas prices going up next spring. But hopefully yeah. next year we will not see the volatility and the hype that we saw this year. So one last question before I let you go. After kind of given everything we just talked about, if you were in charge and you could wave kind of your magic energy wand, like what would what would your policies look like to either smooth this transition or kind of help insulate consumers from some of this volatility, give us a little more predictability? Like what what are the important changes you think should be happening that aren't? I think the root of this is we're short on energy. 
whether it's EVs or oil energy. And we want to progress, right? The only way to unlock that is we need more power. We need more energy. It doesn't really matter what form it comes in, oil, electricity, whatever, nuclear. I mean, obviously, you know, coal is, there are some forms of energy that are outdated. Honestly, I think my first advice to the administration is, you know, bring down the cost of solar panels so that new homes, you institute everyone and in putting a little, a little power plant on their roof, and then you don't need as much of this other stuff. Now, arguably solar, if there's an eclipse or if there's some other issue, you'll need some backup. And honestly, I think nuclear has gotten a bad rap. We haven't really invested in new technology and bring it up, right? Nuclear plants are outdated. The ones that are built have massive cost overruns. There's probably a lot we can do with nuclear. I think nuclear is, you know, as close to green as you're going to get, and it has massive scale. So my advice is where it makes sense, try and incentivize Americans to put some sort of solar on their roof, right? We already have a roof. Why not cover it up in solar and produce our own energy at home? But at the same time, nuclear energy offers a lot of promise, but mm -hmm. it doesn't offer promise for everyone. You can't build a nuclear plant in every state. I think build a couple of them. And then where those gaps, where that energy falls short, you're going to have to rely on liquid fuels. Um, you know, so cut as much as you can um, in terms of pollution, but there still should be a there still should be an outlet for liquid fuels in areas that are too remote or too rural. Well, Patrick, I thank you so much for sharing your um, expertise and insights because I think it's important, you know, people like to paint so many things today as black and white or red or blue or, and, you know, the energy market in particular is very complex with lots of depth and nuance and you always come at it and incorporate all of that, but still making it understandable for, you know, everyday people just wanting to know why it's costing them more to heat their home this winter or to put gas in their tank. So thank you again. Well, it's always my pleasure. You know, we always have to condense it down and to imagine that, you know, we get a little complex in terms of all of the issues, but I uh, appreciate, uh, appreciate the opportunity and always happy to join. Thanks. You can learn more about Patrick at patrickdehan.com. Get his daily insights on energy markets by following him on Twitter at GasBuddyGuy. And be sure to also check out his app, the GasBuddy app, to find the cheapest gas in your local area to save you money, as it's looking like energy prices are going to continue to be more volatile as we move through this energy transition period. Have questions about the economy or your personal finances? Submit a question for the Finance Explained podcast. Look for the link in the show notes anytime and I'll address it on one of our weekly episodes. As always, I so appreciate your support. It is your questions, weekly listening, sharing with friends, and especially your honest and thoughtful reviews that help make Finance Explained possible. So that's it for this week's episode of Finance Explained by Family Finance Mom. I hope each week to build and expand your financial literacy, help you understand not only the week's headlines, but how they relate to you, and also you can make better financial decisions for yourself, your family, and your futures. <music>